And our passage this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 35 through 42 this morning. John 1, 35 through 42. Last week we were out of our regular series going through the letter to the Romans. Uh, We had the end of our Reformation conference and Dr. Truman was in Judges chapter 1. And this week we were scheduled to be back in Romans, but... This week turned into something of a jumbled mess. So here's how the week went. Uh, I had to pray at City Hall this week at the uh, City Council meeting. And the reason I had to pray at the City Council meeting is because the mayor's office called and said, would your pastor be willing to come and pray? And uh, Colin Peters was in the office and I was not in the office on that day. And Colin said, sure, he'd love to. And then Colin was scheduled to preach from Romans 5 this week, and so I was nicely coasting through the week in the office, I must tell you, and then Thursday afternoon, Colin decided to get strep throat. So I have a bone to pick with Colin Peters. And I even asked uh, Chad Scruggs if he would preach this week, and Chad ignored the call of Jesus on his life this week, so... Here we are, we're in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. Uh, Young Christians, young theologians, I want you to listen very carefully for the way Jesus is described in this passage. He's called something, a little bit unusual. It only shows up twice in the New Testament. It only shows up in the Gospel of John. What is Jesus called? And how do the disciples react when Jesus is called this? Notice what the disciples do when they they hear how Jesus is described and how Jesus is named. This is the good news from the Gospel of John the Apostle and Evangelist. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Lord Jesus, we are here this morning to take part in your holy war. And it's a war not fought with Weapons, it's a war fought with your gospel and your spirit. And we pray that you will overcome all that is false and full of sin and unrighteous in us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would carry on your holy war in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our city. Give us revival Give to us a growing conviction of our sin and a growing sense of our need of Jesus for all things and a growing sense of satisfaction to be alive in Him, to be remade by Him, to be used by Him. Wake us out of complacency and ease and convenience 
And give to us instead a deep gospel sense that all of our life is because of the gospel and through the gospel and from the gospel and for the gospel. And if you give revival, it will be obvious. Allow us what the disciples in this passage were allowed. Show us what John and the others saw in Jesus. Open our eyes and our hearts and let us see too. And if you'll do this, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, to be blunt, this is a weird story. John, the blood relative of Jesus, John the baptizer, is busy at his work getting people ready for the coming of Messiah. And on this occasion, John is hanging out in town, apparently. He has come in from the riverside, he's come in from the wilderness, and he's loitering on the street corner with two of his disciples. And Jesus walks past them on his way somewhere else to do something else. And John points Jesus out. It's something of a celebrity sighting. So when Jennifer, my wife, was in college, she saw Chevy Chase and Kurt Russell at a ski resort. And she watched as someone stopped them before they got on the lift and asked for a picture with them, and they unenthusiastically agreed. So the fan hopped between them and smiled widely with the two of them, smiling vaguely, and then something went wrong with the camera. The would-be photographer couldn't get the camera to work. And so the photographer fumbled with it, tried to get it to take the picture, tried to hurry up, but you know how it goes. Every time you try to hurry in a situation like this, you feel like you're slowing things down. And the two stars got very impatient, and then they became rude, and finally they were yelling at the photographer and cursing the photographer. And they got the picture, but it wasn't a very pleasant encounter. And it shows us what these brushes with fame are like and how they work. We have these celebrity sightings and we get all excited, but there's no hope of ever getting close to these people. There's no hope of ever sharing life with these people, being brought in to belong to them. We don't walk away friends. It all happens at a cold distance. But this story is different. This story This sighting is about closeness. So Jesus walks past and John says, there he is. There is the Lamb of God. And that's where it gets weird, I think. Because John doesn't use his name. There's Jesus. He knows Jesus. Why doesn't he call him by name? He doesn't refer to his relation to Jesus. Hey, there's my first cousin. He points to Jesus and he makes a statement for which there is no conversational response. It's a conversation killer. It happens to me all the time. Happened to me last night. We were at a neighborhood Halloween party 
And I was talking to the mother of the hostess. And we were getting on very nicely. And then she asked the inevitable. She just had to ask it. Curiosity got the better of her. And she said, so what is it that you do? And I told her and she said, oh. I was really starting to like you. I tell people what I do and it pushes them away. Actually, what they're running from is the one John is pointing out in this particular passage. But the whole context, the whole scenario is one for which people are completely unprepared. And they close the conversation abruptly and they excuse themselves quickly. It's as if they're saying... I don't want to talk about this. I don't know how to talk about this. And even John's disciples don't know how to talk about the Messiah. But John doesn't shy away from making this loaded, ultimate theological statement. John says, there is the Lamb of God. And it gets weirder. Because these two disciples, who are followers of John... They've they've been with John and learned from John. They have assisted John in his work. They minister alongside John. They've been John's men at every step along the way. And now they leave him and follow Jesus. I have a daughter who is very much in love with the game of soccer. So for the past two years, we've been on a great soccer team with a group of girls from her class. There's another team made up of girls from another class in the same grade. They're from the same school, and so the mascot of our school is the Stallions. Both teams took the mascot for their team name, so we have the gold and blue Stallions, that's us, the good guys, and then we have the pink Stallions, the enemy. There is a steep rivalry between the two teams, and for the season closer last year, the two stallion teams had to play one another. And so the pink stallions started in with a cheer, let's go stallions, let's go. And our team tried to steal the cheer away from them, because it was our name too, you understand. So Each bench of girls got louder and louder, and they chanted this and sang this, let's go, Stallions, let's go, in that shrill, grade school girl kind of way. And it became eardrum piercing, and parents were starting to fall out from the pain of it, and so they started to threaten their girls I actually heard parents threatening to take allowance away and iPods away, and nothing worked. Finally, the coaches had to come over to the bench and say, the next one to chant doesn't get back into the game. The the competition between the two, the clear identity that we belong to this team and not to this team is so well-defined, so deeply ingrained in them that no way would a pink stallion ever think about trying to cross over to become a gold stallion. And a gold stallion would never think to become a pink stallion. But these disciples don't hesitate 
to leave John, their mentor, their teacher, their pastor. Don't hesitate to leave John and follow Jesus. And apparently, they're not just hanging around with Jesus for the afternoon. This is a long-term move. This is a life change. It comes out in this awkward conversation these two disciples have with Jesus. All of a sudden, he turns around and realizes he's being tailed. Says to them, essentially, what do you want? Why are you following me? And they don't know what to say, so they stammer out, Rabbi, where are you staying? And the other one says, that was good. Come with me and I'll show you. And the hour was so late that they ended up staying with him. They didn't verbalize it, but what they were asking was, we want to go with you now. We want to be yours now. We don't even know what that means yet, but that's what we want. So they leave John and attach themselves to Jesus. And they are Jesus' disciples now, and apparently John is okay with this. By the way, we have voices that echo John's voice in our lives. Because this is exactly what the scriptures do. It's exactly how the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's table, are meant to work. It's what church discipline does. Even the kind of church discipline we've participated in recently. An excommunication. This is what tradition does. You understand tradition. Many Christians use it as if it's a a bad word, an offensive word. Tradition means We have practices with theological meaning. Practices which hold out to us the good news of Jesus. This is precisely what fellowship is meant to do. Having to live with people who really aren't all that much like us. And yet there's no difference between us when you really get down to it. This is what prayer does. Calling to one outside of ourselves. To have our hearts rearranged to be pulled out of our toxic self-love, praying, calling out to our God to have our lives taken out of our own hands and to be put into His hands. All of these things point to and reach for something beyond themselves. All of these things together say to us, Behold the Lamb! But they don't call us to a long distance knowledge of Him. A removed admiration. All of these things are means of grace. They are the means or the ways by which we have the grace of the Lamb. The ways in which the Lamb gives His nothing held back love to us. And all of these means of grace work by pushing us to closeness with Him. An ever fonder, more attentive closeness. I met my wife on a blind date. A buddy of mine in seminary set us up and before I realized what was happening, I had this date with this girl and I couldn't get out of it. I thought, this is going to be a disaster. And it was. It was a disaster in the way love always is a disaster. It was a beautiful disaster. 
the way it, it wrecks you gloriously. So there we are on this blind date. And halfway through dinner, I think to myself, I need to get close to her. So I started writing letters. There was no email. Nobody had email back then. There was no texting. Cell phones were the size of lunch boxes. So we wrote letters. We have boxes and boxes of the letters that we wrote to one another. You know where the letters are now? They're wrapped in plastic, tucked away in the garage. We rarely get them out. Sometimes we do. But rarely do we go back to the letters because the goal of the letters was not to have boxes and boxes of them. The goal of the letters was closeness. The goal of the letters was to bring us together. And the goal of Scripture and the goal of the sacraments and our tradition and practices and our fellowship and discipline the goal of our prayer and our preaching, they all say to us, Behold the Lamb. There is the Lamb. See Him and know Him with more and more clarity and more and more faith and more and more worship. But they even push us beyond that. All of these things say to us, The Lamb who is to be beheld, the Lamb who is to be recognized, the Lamb who is to be believed, is also the Lamb to be followed. The Gospel witnesses in our lives, these things, Scripture, sacraments, traditions, prayer, discipleship, discipline, fellowship, all these Gospel witnesses in our lives stand on the street corner like John the Baptist saying, look, there is the Lamb of God. Don't miss the Lamb of God. And we know exactly what's being said when Jesus is called the Lamb of God, by the way. Because John calls Him the Lamb of God one other place. It's up in verse 29 of this chapter. When He's out at the river baptizing, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that one statement, and in this shorter version of that same statement, John is expressing an entire encyclopedia of messianic theology in one sentence. John is laying out the whole doctrine of salvation in 13 words, and then he distills it down into five words. We know exactly what John is saying when he says this. Here is the promised one. He is the promise of God from centuries, millennia past. Here is the Lamb, the one in whom God works out His covenant purpose. He is the one justifying a people to belong to God. Here is the one who is God's over-the-top provision for His desperately needy people. This one is the propitiatory sacrifice. The sacrifice for all of our sins in Him. The full measure of our guilt and the full measure of God's wrath meet and come to an end. Here is the one. And when John says this, what he's really saying is, don't just stand there cow-eyed and stupid. Move. Go with Him. Follow Him. The trouble is, 
we know exactly where following him will lead. There's no mystery to it. Think about what a lamb was in Jewish society. It was an animal to be sacrificed. So if we go with him, we're going to die. Look, if these two disciples follow him and stay with him, we know where they'll end up. They're going to end up on the outskirts of Jerusalem, standing at the foot of a hill with Jesus hanging from a cross. And all their wrong views of the kingdom of God and all their limp expectations of what Jesus was supposed to be for them and all of their narcissistic views of themselves as his followers, thinking they would get all the good jobs in the kingdom. They would get these official kickbacks from Jesus. They thought, actually, Jesus was going to build their kingdoms for them. And they missed entirely that he'd come to build his kingdom. All of their poorly imagined outcomes, they all die in the body of Jesus. They bleed and they suffocate as Jesus is drained of life and goes short of breath on the cross. Their plans for Jesus and their plans for themselves die just outside the city on that day. And that's what Jesus means when he says to his disciples, you're going to have to pick up a cross and you're going to have to carry it and you're going to have to follow me. We, we know where we're going We're going to join Jesus in his purifying death. We're dying to all the old ways. And in our dying, we're going to be purified in the hands of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And that's good news because a sacrifice is no ordinary death. It's not a death of loss. Not death as we're accustomed to it. It's a productive dying. It's a dying that atones. It dies so the guilty ones, the wrong ones, can receive forgiveness. It's a dying to make a clean start. Not a dying that gives up, but a dying that is called on to something better. It's a dying to come to life. A life better than the ones we can make for ourselves. Sacrifice is a death that expects resurrection. And that's where Jesus is ultimately taking his disciples. His disciples will follow him all the way into resurrection. These two won't stay at the hillside with its awful crosses that mock the guilty. They're going to end up in a garden looking into the mouth of an opened, empty tomb asking, what happened? What just happened here? Jesus died for their sins, and they died to themselves. That's what happened here. But Jesus rose for them, so they get to rise with him. That's what happened here. Jesus rose to give them his surprising kingdom. Jesus rose to be the Savior who cannot fall short. Not a half-baked, consumerist version of what a Savior would be. He doesn't play into their versions of what the Savior should be. He rises to be the self-defined, self-revealing Savior. And He rises to define them too. 
He rises to ensure that His disciples will become all that He means for them to become. Jesus rose so that holiness would begin to win against the sin in our hearts and in our minds, in our flesh, in our activity and our agency in the world. He died and rose to make the old creation obsolete and to start the work of the new creation in us. Behold the Lamb hanging from a cross. Behold the Lamb striding out of a tomb. Behold the Lamb with His crucified, risen disciples following along after Him. Really, I think this passage gives us three things. It gives us more, of course, but there are three that I think of particularly when I think of us. Number one, this passage teaches us how to do theology. In fact, it shows us what good theology is and what it's used for. You'd be surprised, but even in a church like ours, in a tradition like ours, there are a fair number of people who hate theology, think it's absolutely useless, it's cold and heartless and sterile. It's a blank intellectual pursuit. That's a a terribly inadequate understanding of theology. It can be these things, but it isn't meant to be these things. At its best, when it's done prayerfully and scripturally and submissively, theology says, behold the Lamb. It's meant to hold out to us what the Lamb is like and what the Lamb is not like. It's meant to increase our understanding and our faith and our love for the Lamb as it allows us to see Him more clearly and to reject all misrepresentations, all mischaracterizations of him, whether they're ours or someone else's. So when someone says, as people often do, doctrine divides, it's a very common objection to theology in the church. When someone says, complainingly, doctrine divides, the answer to that complaint and objection is simple. The answer is, yes, thank you, you got it, thank you for being so honest, thank you for coming awake, thank you for seeing what God has given to us, doctrine does divide, it's always meant to divide, it divides the followers of the Lamb from those who don't follow, it divides those who are able to say, behold the Lamb, from those who cannot say, behold the Lamb. So, for us, good theology allows us to say with warmth and joy and love and conviction, behold the beautiful, wondrous Lamb. And those who are theologically lazy just can't say it with the same conviction. Those who are theologically lazy won't be able to say with as much certainty, behold the Lamb. Second, the passage shows us what ministry is to be like. How to do ministry, essentially. It it is not to be done with our strength. It's not done with our abilities. It's not dependent upon our influences and position. It doesn't need 
our success. Jesus does not build His kingdom with our success. That's a common error in the church today. In fact, I I love what John does in this passage because he destroys the notion of infatuation with celebrity inside the church. Dismantles the, the place where we enshrine celebrity in the church. He demolishes the cult of personality in the church because his ministry was designed to lose people. John's ministry was designed not to build a following of people around himself, but to prepare people to follow Messiah into his future, not into John's future. Why why can't they follow John? Why can't they follow a celebrity in the church? Why can't they follow me? Why can't they follow you? Why can't you build a following? Because on our best day, none of us has lived, none of us has died, none of us has risen to save sinners. The, The ministry that we're given is to point away from ourselves and to point to Jesus. Our ministry is not to preach ourselves or our church. And often we try to minister by preaching the wrong saviors. Our shared ministry is to stand together and to say, there is the Lamb. Don't stand here. Go with Him. The passage also tells us how to do this kind of ministry. If we're listening to Jesus, if we are humble and submissive, if we trust His perplexing but perfect sovereignty, if if we are following Jesus to the cross and our sin is being taken apart, if we're following Him to the resurrection and we're rising again and again as new creations, then Jesus will proclaim Himself powerfully through us. Last bit. This passage also shows us what the Christian life is like. It is not just knowing about Jesus and saying the right sounding kinds of things about Him when asked. The Christian life is following the Lamb. It will always look like leaving one thing and arriving in something else, something different. It will always look like abandoning something and taking up permanent residence in something else. Leaving John to follow Jesus. Leaving a shallow knowledge of Messiah for a deep, rich, doctrinal, revealed knowledge of Him. It will look like leaving narcissism for service. Leaving immaturity to establish ourselves mature. Leaving foolishness for wisdom and control and fear for faith. It will look like leaving our twisted excuses and explanations and exemptions, all the things that we base our childish libertine indulgences on, we'll leave all of that for the beautifying authority of the Lamb over our lives. We'll leave our favorite sins for a growing love and desire for His righteousness. We'll leave barrenness for fruitfulness. We'll leave darkness for light. The gospel is, you can come follow Jesus as you are. But the gospel also says this, following Him, you can't remain as you are. And because I live with me, and I know me, that's the best news I could ever hear. 
Skeptics, if Jesus is the Lamb of God, you should follow Him. But if He is not the Lamb of God, you should not follow Him. So you have some digging to do. You have to find out. Behold the Lamb is what John says. Read and study and learn and inquire of Jesus. Are you the Lamb of God that I should follow? And have the courage to go where the search takes you. And in the meantime, the rest of us will be praying for you. I think all of this comes down to this. Everyone follows someone, whether we know it or not. And the one you follow is either the one you fear the most, the one who can threaten you convincingly, the one who is poised to do you the most harm, the one who can take away from you the most. Or, you follow the one who loves you most, the one who suffers most for you, endures the most for you, persists the most for you, spends the most to love you, gives all that he has to love you. You'll follow one or the other, the one you fear or the one who loves you. The passage is telling us to follow the one who loves us. Hugh Latimer was a young preacher in the mid-1500s, and one Sunday he was asked to preach a sermon before the king. So he stood in the pulpit and he preached to the court of Henry VIII. And Henry didn't like the sermon. He was angry. How dare Latimer point out the king's sins. How dare Latimer say these things about the king? So, for punishment, the king ordered Latimer to return the following Sunday and to preach again, to make amends for his offenses and the insults that he had hurled at the king. So the next Sunday came and Latimer climbed into the pulpit again and he read his text and he started into his sermon, but it sounded like he was talking to himself He started out with a monologue, and it went something like this. Hugh Latimer, do you know this day to whom you speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend. Therefore, be careful not to speak even a word that may displease But then consider well, Hugh, do you know for whom you speak? Do you know whose message you carry? It is the great and mighty God who is all present and who knows all your ways and who is able to cast your soul into hell and who has given his son to take your hell instead. So, Hugh, Deliver his message faithfully. And then Latimer, with more enthusiasm than the week before, stood up in the pulpit and he gave exactly the same sermon as the week before. And that is following. Behold the Lamb, the Lamb who loves you. Don't just stand there looking at him. Follow him. Amen.